Well, good morning. How are you guys? Great, awesome, all that stuff. I love this shirt. Mine was made by Dina. So that's so awesome. She did a great job on it. It looks great. They were mocking me before because I got the mercy shirt. I don't know why they thought that was funny that I would have mercy. I thought it was funny that Shane would have humble. So (laughs) for whatever that means. As a kid, as a kid, I always wanted to be a hero. Perhaps you were like me in that. You always thought, wouldn't it be great to save the planet or save the girl or just even just save the day. I mean, I, I actually literally grew up, I had a season of my childhood where I wore capes. You're imagining it. Some of you are still there. I wore capes and a mask and I would, I would jump off the, the leg of the couch in my family's home because I just, I wanted to be a hero. And my favorite hero when I was like seven or eight was the Adam West Batman that some of you will remember. Right. And wouldn't it, can you just imagine what it would be like to have like a pole where you could slide down into the bat cave and get in the bat car and go out and save the world? That would just be a phenomenal existence. But listen, good news, even if you don't have a bat car, a batmobile or you don't have a, a bat cave in your home, the world still needs heroes. It's, it's interesting, in a few weeks we're going to be kicking off a new series over the life of David and we're calling it Flawed Heroes. So this is going to be a theme that you're going to be hearing for the next few weeks. But the reality is most heroics, they, they don't take place on some grand stage. They're not that theatrical. Most happen in small moments, in mostly invisible places, and they change a singular life. And so what if I told you, what if I told you that it's possible for you to be and to act and to live in a way that would be heroic to those that are around you? Some of you are like, no, not me. But yes, you. What if I told you that in the midst of most of our normal, ordinary parts of our lives, that there will actually be and are actually moments and opportunities for you to actually save the day or to even save a life. Would you be willing to do that? Well, if you're not sure, I hope after the next few moments that you will be. Because I want to tell you one of those kind of hero stories today. And it's a story that Jesus, the master storyteller, introduced. And it makes an extremely Extremely important point, especially in the day in which we live. And if we, get to the, if we get the point of this story, the story itself is not going to surprise any of you. You're going to be very familiar with it. But the point of the story and the question that the story forces each of us to have to ask, if we answer it correctly, life as you know it can actually shift. So I told you it's familiar. It's found in Luke chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles or if you're on the Crossing app, if you can go and find the notes for today. The Crossing app is great because you can follow along with all the scriptures and you can add your own thoughts and notes to that and go back and to refer to it later. So if you don't have that app, make sure that you download it. As you find it, let me welcome those who are not in the room today. Maybe you're watching from the Southeast campus. We love all those folks out there that are gathering together there. Maybe you are at a microsite today or you're just home. 
and you're watching online, um, we're sad that you're not here with us, but we're so glad that through technology you can be a part. And we mentioned earlier that we're in this series called Hills That We Die On, the fundamental things that we believe are of primary importance and priorities for us. And as we've introduced this series, we've been talking about this thing called the Great Commission Engine. And our team here at The Crossing, we talk about it all the time because these, we believe, are the four core things that we want to pay the most attention to. And so in the first week, Shane talked about this idea of temple courts, the idea that weekend services, when we gather together, he talked about purpose over preference, that we come together and sometimes there's things we don't prefer, but we understand our great purpose in gathering is to reach those who haven't found Christ yet. And so we talked about that. And then last week, we talked about house to house and we were in the book of Acts and how rich community, doing life together, whether that's in life groups or serving and just being together and and discovering Jesus together and growing together is really important. Here's the one we're gonna focus on today. It's what we call missional outreach. And we like to talk about in this box, it's that idea that as we engage with Jesus, that there's action that we take. This is real action where we give and we serve and we go and we discover our gifts. And what does that look like? And so today as we talk about this idea of being heroic, this is the piston that we want to talk about that drives us forward as a church, but also as disciples in Christ. And we're going to be looking at a question that is not, it's contextual to everyone. So whether Whether you're a student in the room today, whether you're a retiree, mom, dad, a single adult, wherever you may find yourself in life, the question that Jesus is going to really pose for us, we are forced to answer and then act upon. All right, and here's how the story goes. It's in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. It says, on one occasion, which means there were other occasions, but on this one occasion, and what was happening in the context here is that Jesus would get up many times and a crowd would gather. And he would teach, and then following his teaching, there'd be kind of like one of those CNN town halls. There'd be an opportunity for people to step up to the microphone and to ask questions. And so on this occasion, Jesus had taught, and now they were stepping up to the microphone. And it says, an expert in the law, just call him a lawyer, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. It's important that you get this because as you watch his actions and listen to his words, it's, you have to understand that the questions he was asking, there was an agenda behind it. That there wasn't just a purity there. That he was, His goal was to test, which meant to confuse and maybe embarrass Jesus in front of the crowd. And so that was his point. So he asked Jesus, he said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's a great question. Because the question he's asking, we should all be asking constantly, and that is, what do I need to do to to get connected to God, and what do I need to do that's right and righteous and correct to keep me connected with God? And and, and that's a great question, and it's great that he, he asked it. What does God want me to do? How do I stay good with God? And like Jesus has a way of doing, he, instead of answering the question, he asked the lawyer, a question. Here's what, here's what Jesus said to him. He said, you answer it, he said. He said, what do you know that is written in the law? He replied, you're the lawyer. You're the expert. How do you read it? How do you interpret it? And then the lawyer answers the question. And the way that he answers it would have been in a way that everyone in the crowd would have nodded. This was an answer that if you grew up as a young Hebrew boy or girl, 
you would have memorized this part of the Old Testament. You would have known this answer. Jesus would have memorized this as a child, and he would have known this answer. You're going to be familiar with it. So to answer the question, the lawyer says the following. He says, here's how I would answer that. He says, I want to love the Lord your God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, and with all my mind. Pause for a moment. This is the part that all of them would have gone, mm-hmm, yep. That's correct. That's what you're supposed to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. Now, you've heard that before, and you may have heard it before because earlier Jesus had answered a similar question with the same answer. He had answered and said the exact same thing, except that Jesus had added a part. And the part he added was this right here. Jesus had added this part. He said, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we're familiar with that. Most of you, if you've been around church, if you've, if you've anywhere, you've, you're familiar with the idea of love your neighbor as yourself. But you have to understand, when Jesus said that, people's minds were blown. They had never connected, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, their vertical orientation to God, with the horizontal orientation to God, which meant we also need to love our neighbor as ourselves. They had never connected that in the way that Jesus connected it. And it comes from Leviticus. Here's the passage that Jesus pulled it from when he, when he said it. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone. This is, this is in Leviticus, in the law. Anyone among your people, stop. So for a Jewish audience, they would have known this, but they would have interpreted it as, who is my people, right? We all have our people. You have your people. I have my people. If you get invited to that party, you might not go because those aren't your people, right? Or you might, you might be involved with it. We're going over here because it's my people. And so to a Jewish audience, when they read this, they go, we get that. We're not going to bear a grudge against anyone among our people, right? But we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves. In other words, if they're Jewish, they're my neighbor. I'm going to love them. Right? If they're my people, I'm going to love them. Take them into your context. Whoever you think is your people, that's who we need to love as ourselves. But when Jesus said it, he was referring to a much broader interpretation, as they're about to find out. So back to the lawyer. When he said it, love your neighbor as yourself, he probably smiled. He was probably like, yeah, Jesus, I'm throwing your answer right back at you. Right? Maybe he was there early and he'd heard it. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus says, great. And he says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Good job. End of conversation. I'm out of here. And Jesus was about to walk off like he had done so many times. And, you know, kind of leave the disciples to answer all the follow-up questions. But the, but the attorney, the lawyer, stops him. And he says, hold on, hold on, hold on. I've, I've, I've got to... I've, I've got another question for you. I'm not done. And here's where he's really trying to test Jesus. And it says this. It says to, to justify himself, to make himself look good, he asked Jesus, wait a minute. Who is my neighbor? And this is the question that I have to deal with. And this is the question that you have to deal with. Who is my neighbor? 
Here's what he's really asking. Here's the soul of the question. And maybe we've all done this when it comes to areas of our relationship with Christ. Maybe it's sin or, or other things. It's the question of minimums. What he's really saying is, what is the minimum amount of people that I have to be neighborly towards? Give me a quota, give me a description, and I can do that, but, but give me the minimums so that I can be good with God and love my neighbor. Now, we know, we know from Jesus that that's not what he wants of us, right? When Jesus says to live a more abundant life or a full life, he's not talking about live your life in as minimal of a fashion as possible, right? Get right to the edge of sin all the time. What can I do that doesn't quite qualify as sin? How, who can I love that's easy and just enough that I can qualify to love my neighbor as myself? That's what the lawyer, maybe why he's a lawyer, no offense to the lawyers watching or in the room, but he's trying to get to that small part of the law. And Jesus' response is so dramatic. And you're about to hear the story that you've heard so many times. And you're going to check out and you may grab your phone and start scrolling through. And you're going to say, been there, done that. Maybe if you grew up in church, the teacher in the small Sunday school closet in the back somewhere your parents stuck you. They had the felt board and they put this on the wall. And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you will grab a hold of what Jesus was really saying, not just in the context of how dramatic it was for the audience he was saying it to, but how dramatic it is in 2018 to an audience who lives in a culture where it's really hard to be neighborly, where it's really hard to even know your neighbor as yourself, to even love your neighbor is next level. Here's how the story goes. He says this as an answer to who's my neighbor. A man. And you're like, ah, I got it. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Down meaning about 3,000 plus feet of elevation drop in about 17 miles. So the road he was walking would have been familiar. It would, it, it would be like if I told you to go from here to Pahrump. You'd be like, all right, I'm going to take Blue Diamond. I'm going to go down. You know the road. So to his audience, they knew the road. They're nodding. A man's going down. This was, a, this was treacherous to travel, and it was treacherous because it was known to, be, to have some characters there. It was dangerous to travel. So Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. Clothes were valuable. So it wasn't just something humiliating. This was something where they took his clothes because there was value to have those clothes. They beat him physically and they went away, leaving him half dead. All right now, listen. Right now, you're, 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 you've got the first line of the story and all of you know where this is going, right? All of you understand the idea of the Good Samaritan. It's coming, right? How many of you have ever heard the story of the Good Samaritan before? Raise your hand, all right? 100% of you. Guess what? If I went anywhere in the world, even across language barriers, and began to tell this story, my guess is that nearly 100% of the people in that room, if, they, if you said, are you familiar with the idea of a good Samaritan, they would raise their hand, right? Because this story that Jesus told actually became bigger than a story. It became an idiom. It became something that we don't even need to know that Jesus told it. If you say to somebody, that, was really some, that person was really a good Samaritan, they understand what you mean. Even if they don't know, we don't even know any Samaritans. But we understand this story. This was a hinge point. Honestly, 
We blow through Luke chapter 10. We blow through this moment of Jesus' life. But honestly, this was a turning point historically. Jesus was about to blow the doors off what it meant to be neighborly, what it meant to do life with other people, what it meant to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. And the people listening had no idea what he was about to drop on them. And that lawyer should have sat down right there, but he kept standing. And Jesus tells the story of this man, and he's beaten, and he's injured. And he, and he tells us this part. He says, as he's laying there, two religious dudes come by, a priest and a Levite. And in the story, they walk by. They walk by on the other side. They don't pay any attention. They don't do anything to help the man. And that strikes us because if we were to judge their closeness with God on the premise of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, they would fail because they didn't love their neighbor as their self. They probably thought they couldn't be bothered. Whatever they were doing was probably important, much more important than that guy. They may have even thought, as you and I probably have a time or two, that guy just got what he deserved. I'm not going to get involved And the ones who we thought would be accessible and help him actually didn't. But the one who we wouldn't expect to help actually did. And Jesus drops the bomb in verse 33. He says this, but a Samaritan. Samaritan." And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The lawyer's probably like, Jesus, you're you're not going to freaking make the Samaritan the hero of the story, all right? That's not going to happen in this space. We don't do that. The relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans had so much history, but the two words we would have to use to describe it is institutional racism. The fact that if you were Jewish, you did not touch, you did not interact, you didn't normally speak, you definitely didn't intermarry. You would go out of your way, as we see a number of times in scriptures, to go around, to not even walk on their soil or into areas where Samaritans would be. So when Jesus is defining a neighborly act by using a Samaritan as the hero in the example, people are freaking out. And he goes to the nth degree. He says the Samaritan, as he traveled, he says as he traveled, he came where the man was. So he'd been on this road before. And when he saw him, He didn't move to the other side. He didn't think, I don't have time. He didn't think about the price he would have to pay. He didn't think about how needy the guy was. He didn't think how complicated. He didn't talk himself out of action. He said he took pity on him. He understood. He had empathy. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, which meant he touched him, violating the rules of the culture. And he poured on oil and wine. Okay, Then he goes to the next level. He put the man on his own donkey, which means the man rode and the Samaritan walked. And he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. Okay, People are just freaking out as they're hearing Jesus say this. right? Because here's the deal. Most of them would have assumed that the man was a victim of the Samaritans. They would have heard the story of robbers and thought, oh, those Samaritans are at it again. You and I have never done that. They would have assumed that the culprits were the Samaritans, and now the Samaritan has taken this man. And we, and we read further. Jesus just keeps piling on. He says that the man stayed overnight and cared for him all night long. 
And then when he got up in the morning, he, took, he talked to the innkeeper and said, listen, take care of him until, he can, until he's healed up and he can move on. And when I come back through, because I come through here all the time, I will take care of whatever he needs. He saw a need and he met it. He knew the price and he paid it and he didn't talk himself out of it. And then Jesus, in verse 36, says this. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Maybe this will help you. This is my paraphrase of Jesus' question. He says it this way. Which of these three loved the Lord their God by treating a stranger like a neighbor? Which of the three? How'd you like to be that lawyer now? He's still standing there at the microphone. The crowd's got their heads down. He'd like to be anywhere else. And so the lawyer replied and he said this. The one, he can't even say Samaritan. The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And then Jesus walked away. It forces us to ask the question, who is my neighbor? Because the Samaritan did not know this guy. He did not even live in proximity, would not have been allowed. He didn't worship with him. He just happened to be on the same road on the same day. And Jesus' definition of neighbor now just got really wide. Because if, if the definition of what it is to be a follower of Christ is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, I think the evidence of that is how we love our neighbor as ourselves. And his definition got wide. He said, it's not just those who live across the street. It's not just those who live across our town. Or not just those who make clothing in a home for sex trafficked girls on the other side of the world. It's wide. Who is our neighbor? Jesus redefined who our neighbor is, who my neighbor is, who your neighbor is and his definition is similar to many of us but my earliest understanding of the world and what a neighbor was was shaped by this really skinny soft-spoken guy named Fred you know him as Mr. Rogers <laughs> and many of you recently might have seen a documentary about Mr. Rogers um, in theaters my wife and I went and saw it and the lights went down and the first like 10 seconds played and I'm just like I'm like, I'm not crying, you're crying, you're not crying, I'm not, we're watching this thing, right? But the thing that's interesting about Mr. Rogers is it just brings back childhood memories for those that are stuck in our mind. I was talking to Matt in the back, and I said, you remember Mr. Rogers? Matt's like 28 years old. He said, I don't, I got, I'm, I'm Blue's Clues. I'm like, that explains your generation, <laughs> right? Totally explains it. If you're 28 and down, Blue's Clues, we get it now, all right? But Mr. Rogers, remember, he would have King Friday come out and Daniel, the striped tiger, and the trolley. And every afternoon, he would invite us into his home. And you would see him slipping off his jacket and putting on the sweater and his, and his shoes. He said he was my friend, and I believed him. And he would enter the homes of millions of kids like me daily and talk about tough issues and help them 
Help us all make sense of the world. He was the best neighbor any kid could possibly have. And he, it's funny because he got into television because he hated television. He saw people throwing pies in people's faces and doing other kind of demeaning behavior. And it made him so mad. He was faced with the decision to either walk away from television or to embrace it. And he chose to invest and pursue a career in broadcasting. And he ended up creating one of the most beloved American television shows that ever played. And he spoke each day in illuminating the minds of young viewers as a six or seven year old I can remember laying on my stomach with the big box television and my family with the the rabbit ears going towards the sky and he had this way of not just talking but he would pause because he was expecting that wherever the kid was on the other side of the television camera would be responding back it was a dialogue a conversation that that he was having and his approach to the show was a result of his Christian calling he was actually an ordained minister his denomination would eventually commission him as an evangelist to children. But no matter what the topic was, it always centered around the fact and the word of neighbor. For Rogers, a neighbor was not just the person who lived next door that you waved at or exchanged small talk. It may have been, not been someone who looked like you or dressed like you or hung out at the same coffee shops you did. It was anyone who crossed your path. And this iconic photo speaks to that especially if that person was in need. And Fred Rogers' entire existence was wrapped up in that lawyer's question to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he believed and taught the same thing that Jesus demonstrated. As neighbors, we are bound by our humanity, not just by our proximity. And we are connected by need, not just by our nearness. And that's what makes us heroic neighbors. When we see a need and meet it, when we know the price and we pay it and we don't talk ourselves out of it. And as a church, we believe this piston is so important that we together are growing in Christ by not only gathering together and doing our groups together, but that we're seeing neighborliness everywhere. We're seeing opportunities. Wouldn't our world be a different place if just for one day, even just one day, more or less a week or a month, all of us could come together and begin to love our neighbor as ourselves? How would that change our world and our culture? We see it in three ways. We see it in this way. We, we want to be a neighbor to those who are far away. As Shane mentioned earlier, those who, those who live around the globe, those who are far away. Maybe you need to go and see another culture and be on another trip somewhere and, and, and reach someone in it, in it, across the border. But be a neighbor to those who are far away. We go, to, we go to Mexico a lot around here and build homes. It's awesome. This October, we're taking a team, and they're going to be building the 50th home that the Crossing has built in its history. That's crazy. 50 families. Okay? But listen, I think of names of people that are in this room that have done that and built those. All right? Last May, I got to go and build a house with a team. This is a picture of the house. But what I really want you to see is the next picture. This guy's name is Julian, and he's the father. He's the dad. He looks like he's 12. He's standing next to my son. But listen, you want to be a neighbor? You stand in front of a house with a father as you hand them the keys to a place that will protect and keep their, their kids safe and allow their kids to go to school. And he's weeping. You can be a neighbor in that way. Some of you are like, oh, I'm too busy, I'm too broke. No, you're not. You're too bored and you're too bloated. Stop it, all right? <laughs> it's not true, okay? 
I got a solution. If you say, I can't go build a house, listen, just skip one Saturday Costco trip and you can afford to go build a house in Mexico. I've seen you in that line. It's not pretty, all right? Nobody needs 48 ribeyes. Nobody. Nobody needs them, all right? So when you see a picture like this and you think, what can I do? Secondly, we believe we can be a neighbor to those who live nearby. A week or so ago, I got the privilege of being part of a Hope for Prisoners graduation. It was awesome, all right? Here's what's so cool. They're all standing there, right? And there's all these crossing people in the room. I'm like, what are you doing here? What? Oh, I'm mentors. I'm like, I have no idea. Like, all these crossing people are there doing all this. And there's 30 prisoners. And at one point, they get up and they share what's called a vivid vision. It was so powerful. We all ought to do it. And this guy, Denver, he got up and he shared his. And what they do is they have them write a vision of what their life will look like in a year. And he just described, this is what my life's going to look like. My, my family's going to come over. I'm going to open the door and we're going to have dinner together. I'm going to take my kid to school. I'm going to go to my, I'm just like, right? You shake the hand of a, of a prisoner who just got released and now has hope and a chance for a second life. That's what being a neighbor is about. When you sit across from them at a table and mentor them back into better thinking patterns and better choices and better decisions. Be a neighbor to those far away. Be a way to those nearby. And lastly, be a neighbor to our next generation. Hold tight. Now, some of you, when we talk about reaching our world, you send the email or you get on Facebook anonymously and send me that comment, all right? So here, here's what it says. It says this, I know we're supposed to be neighborly, but can't we do more for the people next to us and not be going around the world all the time? <clears throat> okay, two thoughts for you. One, check your heart. Check your heart, right? Because somewhere in your heart, you understand that there are people that are in such a needy place that don't even reflect the needs that we have. But secondly, it's not an either or, it's a both and. And so we want to be a neighbor to those in the next generation specifically. Especially those who come on our campus, our students, our high school, middle school, our kids. I'm so grateful. I have adult kids now. They're adulting. I'm so grateful every day for the for kind of adulting. I'm so grateful every day for the people who mentored and poured into their life. And we've got Nate Johnson and Robert Brazil and their team that lead our student ministry. If your kid's not in student ministry, shame on you. Shame on you. I would hate for them to get that soccer scholarship to that college and miss out on discovering Jesus in the journey. Amen. Right? So make sure that your priorities are right. And our Rachel and, and Michael, our new kids guys, they do a fantastic job. And so Rachel's fired up all the time, so I want you to hold tight. Because she's always just blowing me up. Like I think she loves your kids more than you do. All right? I want you to hear from Rachel, and then I want you to hear from Rachel as we reach the next generation. Watch this. Hey, I'm standing here with Rachel in the venue, and this is one of our key next-gen environments at The Crossing where our students and our elementary kids gather all the time. And I wanted to get Rachel in front of you because she's fired up. She's blowing me up all the time about we need to continue to push in to reaching the next generation. Why have you given your life to this, and, and why are you so passionate about making sure that we do not neglect this next-gen? Well, I mean, every single weekend in these environments, it's where the foundation of our church and the capital C Church, the Kingdom of God, is laid. The leaders that come in here every single weekend are paving the way for our future. And moms and dads, the conversations that happen in these rooms are supposed to be catalysts to what happened in your home Monday through Friday. So this is where it all began. I told you, she's fired up. <laughs> now, keeping in mind, that being a neighbor is not about those that are closest to us or proximity, but it's about going and meeting the needs of those who need it the most. And so I wanted you to hear from Rachel today directly. And so I want you to welcome her out to our stage. 
Hey, guys. Author Gerald Fatayomi says, the next generation needs someone who has gone before them to be for them. I know this to be true in my life as I found myself a young millennial having hit rock bottom. I realized I was living out the narrative the adults around me believed typical of my generation. The difference maker for me was a leader in my life who refused to let me become another statistic and run away from my faith. If anyone could muster up a decent excuse to ignore my needs, it was Bill Houndshell. Instead, he sat across from me at Skyline Chili in Mason, Ohio. That's right, Skyline. Calling out my truest identity and pointing me to a picture that was different than what others were telling me. I truly believe that it was this conversation that changed the trajectory of my life and is the very reason why I can stand here today doing what I'm privileged to do. People ask me often why I've given my life to kids' ministry. And it's because I believe every kid and every teenager needs a bill in their lives. I often wonder what would have happened if Bill acted like that priest or Levite on that deserted Jericho road. What if he didn't stop and pay attention? And where would I be if he just passed me by, let me be someone else's problem? I also ask myself, what will you and I, our world, miss out on if we too don't stop and pay attention to the next generation of leaders who are rising up right next door. Unfortunately, we have a generation that's coming up who have been labeled the most lost generation the world has ever seen. James Emery White puts it this way, as the first truly post-Christian generation and numerically the largest, Generation Z will be the most influential religious force in the West and the heart of the missional challenge facing the Christian church. Now, I wish that I could just grab a cup of coffee with you and tell you about how amazing these young people, the great potential this generation has, but until I can... I just need you to realize the pivotal role that God has called you and I to play in their lives. See, now more than ever, this post-Christian generation desperately needs the church to rise up and start being the church. This next generation, again, needs someone who has gone before them to be for them. Despite the depravity of our culture, I can have hope because of people like you, and because of churches like ours. I believe if we rise up and start fighting for the hearts of the next generation, we can stir up what will be an irresistible force for the kingdom of God. We can't afford to pass by another generation. So here's my prayer for us at the crossing. My prayer is that we would be a church that fights harder for the hearts of the next generation more than the enemy could ever dream of that we take their questions about faith and identity and we harness their curiosity towards a hunger for Jesus, that we take this cause-driven generation and teach them about the greatest cause they could ever live for, that we would be a people who prevail in prayer over every kid and every teenager that walks in this place because we understand the influence they're holding in our world. 
I want to be history makers and statistic shifters where declining church attendance starts rising, young people come flooding back through our doors and where the name of Jesus is not forgotten but is known because we have so many adult leaders in this church investing in the next generation. I was praying Matthew 9.37 the other day and it says the harvest, plen- the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so I was just crying out to God. God, send the laborers for the next generation. Send the workers. And he said, I have. I have. They're sitting in the auditorium. And they're walking through the buildings that you, you guys worship me in. Guys, we just got to get out of our seats and start going. This isn't just the heartbeat and the mission of the church that we call home. This is the literal reason why God put us on this earth. So will we stop and pay attention? The Good Samaritan treated a stranger like a neighbor. Maybe it's time you and I reached down to a generation that seems strange and unlike us so that we can unleash them to live out their fullest potential so we can continue building the church through all of our people here at the crossing. Let's pray. God, I pray we go and do likewise. I pray that as we pass by those response tables outside that we don't ask if we should be serving, but who and where. I thank you for the continual reminder you give us that we should be serving you, that we have a privilege to serve you, God. So lastly, I pray that we do lean down and reach out until every kid and every student and every neighbor knows who you are, Jesus. In your name, amen.